This is Bedside, a podcast series on a mission to debunk sex. I'm your host, Tatiana, and each week we'll uncover stories, ideas, routines, and expert information to help guide you on your ever-evolving journey of good sex. We believe that through democratizing sexual wellness, we can shift cultural taboos and make way for authentic and limitless access to pleasure, joy, and connection to the body. What other kinds of sources of that love, safety, or general permission are they cutting off actively because they think they don't matter or don't count, or they don't realize that they are also sources, potentially even more reliable sources than this supposed dream partner that they're seeking, right? And what could that look like if we started to really think about what love is or what it can be outside of this idea of love equals romantic relationship or romance? Did you know there are actually more than five love languages? Today joining me on the podcast is Anne Hodder-Ship, a certified sex and relationships educator and author. On the show, Anne is here to chat about their latest written work around the topic of modern love, specifically the 18 languages for modern love, which is Anne's much needed and expansive update to the classic love languages we all know. As you'll hear on today's episode, there are more than just 18 languages Anne has discovered, but urges us to reconsider how the love languages uniquely work for us. This is truly such an insightful and interesting episode as Anne shares pieces of their own upbringing, what led them to exploring more diversity around language, and Anne even shares some really fascinating details around where the five love languages originated from in the first place, but you'll have to stay tuned for that one. We talk a lot about identity, queerness, growing up, and pushing the barriers around sexual scripting. Let's get to the episode. I'm so excited to have you on the Bedside Podcast today. I just want to give you a super warm welcome to being here. Thanks for having me. Tell me how you're doing lately. Just the temperature check. I know that. (laughs) How am I? Hmm. I am doing well. We are in year three of a pandemic that a lot of people are behaving like it doesn't exist anymore, which is weird. But I moved from my 15-year home of Los Angeles recently to Portland, Oregon, which is where I am now. And yeah, so it's definitely been a really positive shift in terms of the container that I am existing in. So that's been nice. And it's been really hunkered getting a lot of things created and handled work-wise. I've been really in creating mode, whether it's with workshops or some of the trainings that I host or just sort of making this new space feel like a permanent home. So, so that's been nice. So you are a sex and relationship educator. You're a healer. You're a coach. You're the author of Speaking from the Heart, 18 Languages for Modern Love. 
I am so excited to really get into conversation with you today, specifically really around these modern love languages. But I think before we like really get into that, I'd love to know more about how you got started in working in the realm of sex and relationships. Yeah. Well, I always have to work hard to like not have this be the longest answer ever. So let's see. I've always been interested in sex, but not necessarily consciously aware that that's what I was interested in. Like as a young kid, even just was really aware of self-pleasure and the way that I grew up, I don't know, using my words, like I was very desexualized by everybody around me. And, but I very much had like a sexual relationship with myself, but I didn't necessarily even consider it like that. So I just wanted to understand like what was going on and, and we didn't have the internet until well into high school. So I just would read a lot at the library, this very tiny book section, which is in front of everyone. So I had to try to be stealthy and I'm sure I wasn't. So I've always been from a place of what is this about? Because understanding things makes me feel like I am safe and in control and, and makes me feel empowered and the, and the interest always came as an unconventional perspective because it wasn't in the context of sex with other people or trying to build relationships with other people. I didn't really have a whole lot of scripting imposed on me in terms of maybe compared to what people in my community or folks that I work with have had. I definitely had scripts imposed, but it was just very different from, I think, would have been expected in small town New England in the 90s and 80s. So... When I went to journalism school and pretty soon out of journalism school, I found a job as a copy editor at a magazine that covered the business of porn and the adult industry. And right away, it was just like, oh, this makes total sense. I, I just never really thought I could bring sex and sexuality into that journalism realm. And so I just did like gender and sex research on the side for fun. So that's kind of where things started, covering things. And then as careers transitioned and I started accidentally going into more of an entrepreneurial direction, I just really approached a lot of the things being discussed or a lot of the topics that were being asked about or that I was curious about as curious of a perspective as possible without necessarily something preconceived, which I then wanted to try to improve or figure out. I was just like, what is this about? And from that perspective, I think it's just made a lot of space for some really interesting conversations. And then through the different communities that I've worked with, it's allowed me to also see things from additional perspectives that are typically maybe ignored or left out from some of the conversations. So that's where the perspective expanding uh, approach has come from and continues to come from. How do you find that you have settled now into your own script and identity to where you are now today? Yeah, it's a constant navigation. So I like the word eclectic because it really is my whole life. I think I'm an eclectic person in part because my life has always been eclectic. My parents were Brooklynites who moved to this tiny town because my mom was pregnant. They couldn't live in the shithole they lived in anymore. And my dad got a job in this town. So it was like, okay, we were like outsiders all the time, but not necessarily treated like the outsiders, but definitely like, you know, I was listening to Devo on a record player because that's just what my parents listened to while everyone else was listening to Debbie Gibson, though I also absolutely loved Debbie Gibson once I got a cassette player. And I'm like super, I'm super aging myself for the younger listeners. Look up Debbie Gibson. Absolutely fantastic. Great workout music. Anyway, so 
I think on the one hand, yeah, I didn't necessarily have very deep roots in any certain ways of being and existing and like what was cool and what wasn't cool. I just thought I was cool, even though I think other folks around me, whether I witnessed it or recognized it or not, were sort of like, that person is fucking weird, which I also, at this point, like weird is a not a negative thing. It's an incredible compliment. And so now it's like, I'm 37 and... You know, people think that maybe when you're 30 or 35, you have things figured out and now you can start figuring out life. And I always like to giggle a little because it's just like, welcome to the ride. The stop sign only happens when I think you're dead. And that's when it's, you stop figuring out or learning things or shifting. So identity wise, I had a lot of sexual scripting that was not necessarily about how do you continue to earn other people's love and respect And that was usually through providing service and being totally okay with not having anything in return because in order to get anything in return, it would require this other person to do some work that they're probably not willing to do. And that really wasn't just made up in my mind. It was certainly enforced and reinforced over and over again by all kinds of sexual partners I had in my 20s. And it really wasn't until I was maybe 35 where I was just like, now I don't actually think I've ever really just been like heterosexual or straight. It just was like, that was the term that felt most practical as a word nerd and made the most sense. So when people asked me to categorize myself, I was just like, yeah, there was no tie to the word. It was like, I need to find a word. So, okay. And that was in part because words like queer, they were out of reach. I wasn't enough to be queer. I also wasn't really hetero either. And so if I had to choose the two, hetero felt safer because nobody would accuse me of appropriating, right? Or like being trying too hard and all of that kind of queer insecurity ultimately is what I call it now. I just didn't know that that was a thing that all kinds of people were thinking about the whole entire time. I just kind of figured out it was my own little thing. And so now I am looking back on all this stuff, just realizing how even having such a eclectic, moderately disconnected experience of developing my own sense of self, I still had all these different rules and restrictions that were self-imposed more so about being allowed to be a part of different kinds of communities, you know, feeling like back to the whole idea of being the outsider growing up in this little town, like never really knowing where I belonged and anywhere where I would like to belong, it probably didn't count for X, Y, Z reason. And I was always the one giving myself the reasons. It wasn't like people were telling me why. So now that, you know, the current incarnation is similar part of the journey, but I've recognized or noticed other things that I was carrying along in the backpack of life where I thought, oh, I'm so lucky I'm not carrying around some of these other stupid, heavy things in here. And that's true. And I'm very privileged and so fortunate, but I still had all this other shit I was still carrying around, but also was super fucked and needed to be removed. So over the last few years, there's definitely been some culling of whatever is in that backpack. And I'm sure I will continue noticing stuff that needs to go away. But in the meantime, I'm really just focusing on what are any other rules or restrictions around language use or how you're supposed to look or how you're supposed to spend your time or all this stuff. And are there additional confines I need dynamite and demolish and get out of the way? And I think this kind of transitions me too to talking a little bit about your work with the 18 love languages, because to me, it seems what we're familiar with are the five love languages. And I love how you just kind of poked holes in that. And you said, wait, (laughs) there's way more than five of them out there. There's, in fact, you coined 18. And I'm sure there's more continuing on off of that. So 
I really would love to talk a little bit about that and really hear more about that evolution and what you thought was missing in that specific dialogue. I guess first off, the only reason why there's 18, I w- just through the work over the years of writing down things that stood out to me, like those just 18 words seem to like stand out as things that could be named. And it doesn't necessarily mean that every single one of them is a unique own standalone language. Because when you start really thinking about the language we use and the things that help us feel love, there's all kinds of overlap and nothing is really categorized in neat and tidy little sections. So sometimes when people say 18, like, oh, that's so many, or like, oh my God, I didn't know there were so many. And it's like, well, technically, I mean, there's probably like 4 million. If you really want to think about uniquely and specifically what makes you feel loved, respected, ultimately just like safe and allowed to exist, you may have your own ebook for you that has 42 different words that just work for you. And then for other folks, they might look at that 18 and they're just like, no, that doesn't make sense because those three are basically the same thing. And it's like, great, call it down and make it your own. You know, one of the things that always, I mean, the many things that just didn't quite work for me with the original five was it was so regimented and sectioned as though this was how it all worked for people. And these five things are the way that all people experience love in some way or express love in some way Acts of service, receiving gifts, quality time, gift giving, and words of affirmation. And they're totally valid categories. The biggest issues with these original five, among the just oversimplification of things, is that they were written by a pastor who is a marriage counselor only through his work as a pastor. So this is all through a very specific Christian lens, which also meant that the way that they were discussed, shared online, quizzes were put together, all were with a very particular lens and relationship in mind. And that was monogamous marriage between a cis man, cis woman, hetero, cisgender relationships that are destined for marriage if they're not already in marriage. And Christian umbrella around like values and what love is supposed to be and gender roles. And there was a lot of just garbage wrapped up in it that when A lot of us would read the love languages themselves. And if some people read the books, they were just kind of like, I don't think this is works. Actually, I don't know if this applies to me because of whatever reason, maybe I'm gay. Maybe I don't want to get married. Maybe I don't have a male partner ever want one. I don't see myself here. What does that mean about me? Or there would be cisgender hetero people who are like, I can't wait to get married. It's the only thing I ever want to do in life. But they would also still see the five. And they were like, I don't know if I really vibe with any of them. What's wrong with me? And I would use the love languages and the quiz as part of a curriculum that I would do with addicts in in early recovery, adults, as well as some kids. Of course, I had two different curricula for each group. But as I would work with them, I would be constantly pausing to offer some caveats or some, and here's an addendum I need you to know about this, or here's another way to look at this, or here's some explanation around this, or I would notice that the way that my clients were receiving the information was not the way I was intending it to land. So I was like, interesting, there's a disconnect here. I wonder what that is. So I would just make note of it every time. And after three years of it or four years of it, I was basically rewriting it myself in real time, verbally, every time I taught this. So I was like, I need to write this shit down because I don't want to have to keep remembering it. And I bet at some point, I could maybe like make a PDF or something and I could just make a new version of this that clarified some of the stuff that wasn't quite landing. 
and maybe removed some of these biases and maybe addressed some of these issues around the definition of love or what counts or what doesn't and what counts as a relationship and what doesn't just so that it's on paper. And then maybe some of my colleagues would want to be able to use it because we've all talked officially and unofficially about why they're super fucked up, even before realizing that the author was a super homophobe who just thought relationships meant Christian monogamous marriage. So that was just sort of like the icing on the fucked up cake. And then as I started putting that little PDF thing together, my brain just kind of like took off. And so in a day, I had taken the notes and the things that I thought would have been sort of expanded categories and had 21 different words that felt right with bullet points around like what it could look like or examples and then started editing and whittling it down. And then I was just like, I think this is going to end up having to be more than a PDF one sheet. And as the weeks went on, it just started to expand into what it is now. And it was as a result of just recognizing how much nuance was needed already and then recognizing what specific nuance was really required depending on the audience I was working with. And so now the version of the ebook that people have now is just like the carnation of how can I make a tool that is easy to read, easy to deal with. It's not a deep dive. This is not supposed to be a deep dive. If you want a deep dive, no problem, but that's going to be a long book and not necessarily something that you can just reference to support yourself. And how can I make it so that is very clearly not making any kind of preconceived idea of what relationship means or what love means and who this is for and who is it not for so that whoever is reading it is able to really recognize that this applies to them regardless of anything about their identity or their life choices or what they want in life. And that's also what led to the hyper emphasis on platonic relationships and platonic love. Yeah, that's kind of what really stood out to me. And, you know, I wanted to give listeners like a little bit of a taste of what kind of some of those more specific findings are. And one of them that you had highlighted was really about platonic relationships, which I thought was so profound. And I think a lot of the time we put the concept of platonic relationship on a second tier. If we're looking at the heteronormative hierarchy that you're speaking of, like the marriage and partnership is the top of the hierarchy. And I think what I loved was you really rewriting, well, what does relationship mean and what can the importance and hierarchy of relationship look like? And actually, if we take that entire script away. So yeah, I would love to get your approach on and insights really on that. Totally. Well, that word hierarchy is really a big part of it. You know, when we really think about what relationships are prioritized, which ones get deprioritized in certain situations and what ideas of what relationship or love is supposed to look like, like how could they be potentially getting in the way of accessing what we really ultimately want, which is, I think most of us were actively trying to figure out how do I, I just want to feel loved and allowed and safe. And by loved and allowed and safe, I don't necessarily mean have a partner who hugs us every day or safe, like I don't have any threat in my life ever or allowed, like I have people in my life who clap at me and give me all the validation. What I really mean are like the really just genuine, like, what does it mean to feel loved? For me, I know what it kind of feels like physically. And it feels for me like respect and that's it. Whether someone hugs me or says they love me or have sex with me or even wants to hang out with me, like that isn't conditional. Love is not conditional and all that stuff. Or feeling safe for me is not having no threat in the world. There's constant threat. And specifically because of my identities, I have way less threat even than other people in my world. So it's not about eliminating threat. It's more about 
how do I feel safe in this skin suit I didn't choose in this culture that I did not choose and in some ways uphold and perpetuate and in other ways actively try to break down, you know, how can I just feel a sense of ease so that my nervous system doesn't have to be on hypervigilant mode all the time. And then this idea of feeling allowed to exist, it's all about how can I meet myself where I'm at every day, every minute and be like, fine, I accept, not even necessarily like amazing, I love it. Just like, I accept you're allowed, continue. So from that perspective, it's like, okay, I really want to just eliminate all of this conditionality on finding a partner who looks a certain way. And then we build a relationship that has a certain trajectory and is supposed to look like a certain way and have a certain set of rituals within it. And just really think about, okay, if somebody is hyper-focused on finding that married partner, what other kinds of sources of that love, safety, or general permission are they cutting off actively because they think they don't matter or don't count, or they don't realize that they are also sources, potentially even more reliable sources than this supposed dream partner that they're seeking, right? And what could that look like if we started to really think about what love is or what it can be outside of this idea of love equals romantic relationship or romance? Because ideally we have love, we can source it from like family members. Maybe we felt it sometimes from parents or caregivers. We don't want to get married. We don't want to necessarily have sex with each other. So it's like, well, then what is it about that love that is different from the love that you have with the person you do want to marry or have potential sex with? Is there a huge difference? Why or why not? And just really exploring it from that perspective and just taking like desexualizing and de-romanticizing this idea of what like love and safety and commitment can look like. I love that so much because, yeah, the emphasis has really been around the romance and the sexualization. But I find that we don't have a roadmap to like how to do relationships. And I think specifically too, people feel like really lost in romantic relationships. I think sometimes they feel even more lost in their platonic relationships. They're like, there's a little bit more freedom to speak your truth with a romantic partner, if you will, than there is to be able to necessarily do that all the time with a friendship or to do that with a coworker. And so I just think it's really interesting because we are accessing love from all different types of angles and getting your eyes on a toolkit or larger framework of what that can be and how that can be fulfilling. I love how you brought in that like fulfillment piece. It's fascinating to me and I think it's so necessary. Well, especially now because it's many of our lives have been flipped completely over upside down and remain that way. And so the ways that we do interact with other people is just very different and could permanently stay different. And so especially, you know, during like hyper quarantine for folks, there was a bit of rattling around what does my relationship mean? Because now I'm with them and spending time with them in ways I never had to before. And that's making me think about them different, not necessarily negative or positive, just like it's different. And I'm having conversations I didn't plan on having. And I don't get to have my Thursday night squad outing at the bar or whatever. So like, how do I maintain a friendship outside of these gatherings that are centered around food or drink, for example? Or how do I find a sense of self and identity when I do not get to leave my house every day, having done my hair or put on an outfit or really found some physical expression that really matches how I feel that day? Then who am I if I don't have that part of my ritual? And so just a lot of things were being sort of questioned and, and destabilized as a result. And I think in some ways, 
that made space for some of these ideas to expand for people because clearly how things were, were no longer and probably never will be because the world is different and is going to be, is permanently changed by how things are right now and have been for a couple of years. And so part of that is really like, okay, my usual conduit, what I thought I was doing that was right, that was correct, that I was told to do, or that I saw and had witnessed is the right way. A boulder has fallen across that path and that's no longer a path anymore. So like, do I just sit here? Do I wait for someone to like pick me up in a helicopter or do I need to start like get my machete out and start breaking down some branches and figure out what's over here? You know, and maybe that means there is no path, but as you start breaking the branches, it starts looking like a path. You know, you start, and the more you start traversing, the more you're able to anticipate where the branches are or the boulders or the holes in the ground or the tigers, or I don't know, beating the analogy to death, but that is how it kind of feels thinking about or breaking out of what we think about love or what we think about relationship and what we really want in life and what we want our relationships to look like, because it does, it can feel chaotic and messy. It feels like a lot of responsibility because it does end up kind of being on us to build it for ourselves. And also validates why it can also be very scary because you don't always know where the boulders or the branches or the tigers are. And that's okay. And having it be scary and messy and overwhelming does not mean that those are signs that something is going wrong. That actually may be, those are the signs they need to look for, or at least to use to affirm like, okay, I hate it and I don't have to like it, but this probably means I am on my way to building something That makes more sense to what's realistic about being a human and being myself versus what everyone says or their culture has deemed to be the right way only because those are the constructs that have remained the norm over time. And because of whoever's in power gets to uphold their own ideas. Think about folks who've been in power for centuries. Like that is a direct reason why a lot of these norms and constructs have remained the norm. And for some of us felt like they've always been that way because we've never known anything else. But it's just because the people with the most power and the most ability to be heard and squash the voices that they don't want to be heard or they don't want other people to hear, like they've just successfully taken up all the space. But I mean, especially with how the internet has developed over the last 10, 20 years, they're not the only ones with the megaphone. So there are other places you can listen and look. You just have to maybe turn to your left or turn to your right and like look in some different directions for it. You're fucking brilliant. I'm just eating this up. I'm curious because I think when it comes to the traditional love languages, I think a lot of people are like, oh, this is my love language. What's yours? Are we compatible? Like, how do we interact together? Would you say that what you've created is much more of like a self-introspection way of going about understanding what love and fulfillment can look like for you. It's less like trying to compare notes. Yeah. I mean, that was one of the things that was very difficult and frustrating for me about the original five is because it was quizified. So you can like really quickly figure out what's mine and what's yours. And so I'm going to put that on my dating profile. And if it's, if we don't have the same, there's no way we could work out as though our love languages, once we take that quiz that this Christian guy developed and thought was correct, that means you tattoo it on your forehead and that's how you feel forever. That's just not how it works being human. Similar conversations around, I need to find a partner who has the same sexual desire level as me. So we'll always be satisfied as though anything about being a human stays the same literally our cells are regenerating right now. Like we are even constantly in flux and then we die and we still keep changing. There's just nothing about being a human that's like a rock. I'm thinking too, like about even with some of my like love languages that I'm doing like quote signs. I'm like, yeah, that's shifted already in the past two months. I'm like traditionally really like human touch, 
But I'm like, I'm thinking I really need some words of affirmation these days, you know? So, so you're just really like, yeah, can we maybe not be so like, this is me forever and just be a little bit more like there's flexibility here. Yeah. And recognizing like all this stuff is fluid. Feelings are fluid. We can never really anticipate how things are going to be in the future because none of us know really how to predict the future. And a lot of people claim they can, and I don't think that they're really doing it. Let's just see how am I feeling right now? And when I'm with someone who I do want to have sex with, what helps me feel respected or seen or loved with them? It's probably going to be different than what helps you feel seen or respected or appreciated or loved by a coworker or a family member or a roommate or even just a best friend as it should. And you may find like this one sexual partner, I really vibed when, I don't know, they stood up for me when people tried to like talk shit at the grocery store. But then my next partner, I just really love making music with them. And like, I could give two shits if they stand up for me because I already feel it as a result of what we co-create at home through teamwork, creative expression. So it's like, not only are you going to be shifting and changing over time, you're also going to probably find that you need or express things differently depending on who you're with and the kind of partners you have and what they're all about. And so you never also know what a partner or somebody new could even bring to you before you meet them and start interacting with them. So even if they say, oh, my love languages are words of affirmation and you're like, wah, wah, I need you to touch me all the fucking time. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're not going to touch you. They may be just expressing that they really love verbal communication where there is gratitude lists shared, or there's like one of those, you know, before you go to bed, you share what you really appreciate about one another. That might be what, where they were coming from by saying that on their profile. So we just, we read way too much into this stuff. And then as a result, we're limiting ourselves so extremely. And then we sit there feeling like, what is wrong with me or what is wrong with the world, or it's never going to work because we think we're doing it all right. But really we're following some random person's pseudo rules that don't nearly apply in the year 2022, let alone in the 90s when he made them. It's so interesting. I love that you dropped that it was a guy, like a preacher. I had no There's idea. There's no training in relationships or marriage counseling outside of his work as a minister. Kind of as we're wrapping up here, I'd really love to know, and I mean, it's funny because I can tell already it's such a nuanced question based off of our conversation, but You know, what to you do you really define as relational success? You know, is there a glimpse that you can give us as to what that could and can look like? Like, what's the possibility there? You know, the word success is like super loaded, right? And it tends to be very patriarchal, capitalist, very white European ideas, blah, blah, blah. So I'll just put that out there. I think of it more like it's a feeling, maybe more so than how something might look or be structured. I could see relational success being like you are navigating, interacting with other people in your life in ways that is prioritizing your sense of safety, your humanity, and ultimately what you need to feel in order to continue existing throughout the day. So like you are interacting with people in ways that you are setting and maintaining your boundaries They are doing their best to respect them and to work around them and also setting their own with you. You know, it's very much a two-way street and you are navigating the conflicts that arise in ways that feel true to you. 
be true to your values and are also like transparent and honest. So you're not holding something back because it's just too exhausting to say it, or you're too afraid that it might upset the other person. Those are all scammy quicksand traps also. And we all do it. I do it all the time. Like it's not about, oh, you're a failure if you do it. It's more like recognizing when you do it to make a commitment. Okay. I'm going to try to do it different next time. So you're just consistently making effort toward feeling the way you ultimately want to feel while you engage with other people and actively putting yourself first in those interactions, even if that ends up meaning saying no to people more often than you would like to, or texting some people a little bit less because you're realizing, I don't know what I really get out of this. Being true to yourself in those interactions, choose other people in your life or to seek out other people in your life who can meet you there with similar values even if it means you may end up having one or two people in your life that you really feel that way toward, you know, relational success also doesn't mean having a squad. I don't have a squad. My squad disappeared in in Los Angeles in probably 2011 and never had one back and I've never felt bad about it. I know that's like a lot there, but again, really just drilling down to how you feel. If you're looking for love and safety and permission and all of that kind of stuff, then relational success is being able to consistently access those kinds of feelings and build those feelings with other people without compromising ultimately who you are. Yeah, like just being intentional and making it work for you. That was just so well said. And I think that makes a lot of sense when we can begin to understand what scripts are around us, see if they work for us truly, and then create space and freedom to rewrite some new narratives for ourselves, but maybe keep some of the old ones because that also worked. That's where I think that freedom and empowerment too. There's a lot of power there and freedom for sure. Yeah. We really get to make it work for you. Even if it means you're kind of weighing it for a little while, it's going to feel way better than trying to fit into what you think things should be or how things should look. Cause then it feels a little bit more like you're learning and maintaining a role. And we're not in a play that I know of, unless this is the Truman show. And then it's like, throw this whole podcast out, I guess. Yeah. We're not actors in a play. And even if we're really good for playing a role for a while, ultimately we get exhausted from it and it, it stops being easier functional for us. Yeah. And I think too, I mean, there's probably, because I've experienced this too, there's a fear of letting someone down on the other side, right? Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, if you're just playing a character, you're the one letting yourself down. Oh, of course, because you're not even you, you know? Maybe I'll add this too, like relational success also means feeling disappointed, disappointing other people, getting pissed off, feeling super lonely, having no friends, having so many friends, you don't even know if anything of this is worth it having constant conflict and fights. Success isn't the omission of all of that uncomfortable shit. It's allowing it to happen, recognizing that it's there and like being willing to address it however it needs to be addressed and not necessarily solved, right? Because we can't always solve, just addressing it instead of just pretending it's not there or avoiding it because we don't want to make someone else feel sad, which ultimately their sadness is their responsibility. If we're handling something honestly and truthfully with respect for the other person, then that's what matters. You can't control how someone's going to react to it. And someone can totally respect what you say and feel sad and disappointed at the same time. You know, both can also be true and move on. So it's just like really embracing all of that stuff. That's all a part of relational success. It definitely feels outside of what I think a lot of us are told that relational success means, oh, we never fight. We never fight. Everything's great. It's like, oh, interesting. If you never fight, that to me is a yellow flag to look at. 
in friendships and romantic sexual relationships, all of it, family. I mean, conflict usually is a sign both of you give a shit is better than nobody gives a shit. So they just are like, it's fine. I don't want to fight. It's already kind of dying by then. Yeah, I'm really taking away from this whole conversation with you is I think so often people are like, okay, what is the playbook for relational and successful sex? And it feels one sided and glazed and looking in toward the positivity. And like, we're just going to glaze over the fact that like there are these just human aspects that are always going to be there. It's really just a matter of how we manage them and how we perceive them, which I just think is really interesting. I think it's more what you're saying. How do we walk through life and the humanity and tenderness at times? And how do we do so with intentionality? And how do we do so with having an understanding of what our own relationship to self is in that Yes, totally. At the end of the day, every interpersonal interaction we have with another human is a relationship in some way, even if it's like they helped you bag your groceries or the male person or their your mom. And so anytime you're interacting with another person, just constantly remind yourself that there is another human on the other side of this interaction. And if you need a guidebook at all, just thinking, okay, what would help me feel seen or respected in this moment, whether it's two minutes or two hours, and I'll interact with this person from that place. If you're genuinely like, I don't know how to deal with this person, I don't know, you can use that. But ultimately, everything you do or say can impact that other person in so many different ways. And you get to choose what you want that impact to be based on the energy you have and the time you have and how you're feeling, yada, yada. But like... We are all humans seeking out very similar things, whether we know it or not, or want to admit it. And so we can absolutely approach those kinds of interactions from that kind of compassionate place. My last question for you is what is currently on your bedside table? Mm, Let's see. There's a cat-shaped lamp on my bedside table. There is my electronic thermometer that I use for birth control. There's a big bottle of Aesop lotion, the citrus rind smell, a tissue box, And a book called Leaving Isn't the Hardest Part. I think that's what it is. I'm only partway through, but it's a collection of essays. I think that's everything on my bedside table. I love that. And this was so great. Please tell us where we can connect with you, where we can get our own version of your PDF book, where we can just hear more of you. Yeah. Well, my website is anhottership.com, S-H-I-P-P.com. And and there's a link to the modern love languages there, as well as just the other work that I do in relationships and sexuality. You can also go to the modernlovelanguages.com just straight up. That's where you can read about it. You can get the PDF if you want. You can get the actual like black and white Kindle edition at like Amazon and Barnes and Noble. It's way cheaper. Just it's less pretty. I will just say it's not as pretty. On Instagram at the Ann Hodder, that's where a lot of people interact with me and look at other things that I post, including hot photos and things that have nothing to do with any of this. (laughs) Perfect. I love it. Well, thank you so much for coming on. And it was just great having this conversation with you. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to The Bedside Podcast. If you liked this episode and want to follow along with similar stories and interviews, be sure to check out our Instagram at The Bedside and thebedside.co online. Make sure to subscribe, leave a review, and of course, share with your friends. It's the best way you can support us and our good sex mission. Thank you for listening.